ever feel like life is weighing you down? You know, like you're holding on to things. And no matter where you are in your day, those things are right there with you. But what if those things could be let go? Would it make life a little easier? And would you live with more peace and freedom? Wouldn't it be great to just let it go? Morning, everybody. It is a tough morning. It's um, tough to be up here uh, speaking. And uh, there are many things that I could say. Darren and I um, talked uh, throughout the weekend, and um, one of the um, articles we looked at was from a sports writer in USA Today. And um, it is um, so well written by Mike Lepresti, uh, who's been with USA Today and uh, for, I don't know, 38 years or so. But I thought I'd start by reading this because it expresses so much, says so much. It was so painful, you could not watch. It was so heartbreaking, you could not listen. The president wiped away tears, but what parent didn't, as we stared at the television screen and saw the looks on the faces of the children who got away. On this horrific Friday, we went to an awful place even this blood-soaked society has never been. And what you wonder is how we ever find our way back, when enough will finally be enough, or if we are too far gone to know. It was all there again, senseless carnage in a culture that lives and dies with violence, a culture that is so entertained by it, profits from it, talks it, glorifies it, swims in it, and every so often, when the day is bad enough, gets shocked and sickened by it. Virginia Tech and Colorado, Wisconsin and Connecticut, on and on and on, bullet after bullet, body after body. Much of the discussion in response to all the dead kindergartners in Newtown, Connecticut, will focus on guns, and rightfully so, if little girls gunned down at their desks, don't force the issue, what will? But it is so much more. What is it about us that so many pull triggers? This was the kind of act of a disturbed man, but why so many acts and why so many killers? No new gun control law can answer that. The psychologists will eventually tell us their theories about this individual and why he picked up weapons one morning and decided to shoot five-year-olds. If only it was as simple as one madman, only as infrequent as one grim Friday. But it's not. You wonder if we have created too fertile a breeding ground for violence. You wonder why the predominant emotion among so many of us so often is rage. And then you look around the way we communicate with each other. You look at our talk shows that once fostered thoughtful discussion and meaningful debate. Now they value one word only, attack, attack, attack. The more vicious, the better, because it sells. 
You look at our internet and its vast promise of an interchange of ideas, and then you see how that promise has been perverted to where assault is made all the easier by anonymity. And even the media no longer has use for beauty or perspective because scandal and conflict and heated rhetoric get so many more hits. You look at our entertainment and note the high body count where we are numb to bloodshed and blind to its consequences, where the winner is often the one who kills best. I look at my own pitifully trivial world of sport where professionals, where proposals for safer football rules are hooted down because the game might be less violent and the crowds might stay away. I look at some of the mail I get abusive, brutal language from those furious about a Heisman vote or top 20 pick. If college football provokes such fury, one can only imagine what the real world must do. If rage and rancor are so much a part of our daily lives, it should not be a shock that gunfire breaks out. It has happened so often, and now when the first reports come, we ask the same questions, dulled as we are by the mayhem, where, how many, how young? What terrible questions for a society to have to keep asking itself. No, our violence-rich culture does not make murderers of us all. But cigarettes don't give everyone lung cancer. That does not make them non-lethal. The haunting memory from Friday will be of young voices shrieking in fear, of parents thrust into their worst nightmare, of Christmas stockings that will never be filled. Have we finally had enough? It must not start with just gun control. It must start with us. We've surrendered common civility because something else makes more money or gets more attention. And the result, many simply live angrier lives. But a few pick up guns and go off to kill children who still believe in Santa Claus. Colossians 3.8 says, But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, and malicious behavior. We will never forget December the 14th, 2012. But the question is, what will we do about it? Will all of those dead children and those who served those children so courageously. Will that be in vain, or might something good come from it? This past week, I was uh, listening to a talk given in 1998 at a tech conference in Silicon Valley by Billy Graham. Uh, Billy Graham started his talk by telling about being on a, a flight where there was a drunk man who was causing havoc uh, with the flight attendants and obnoxious and annoying the passengers and people were upset. And uh, there was a governor uh, of a state sitting next to Billy Graham who went up to the man and said, do you have any idea who's on this plane? And the man in his drunken slur said, no, I don't. 
and the governor said, I want to introduce you to Billy Graham. And the drunk man went over to Dr. Graham and shook his hand and said, you have no idea the impact you've had on my life. And Billy Graham said, I'm sure I've had a similar impact on thousands of others of people. And that's, that's my dilemma today, is um, I, I want to make a difference. I, I want something to be different as a result of all of us uh, coming in here today. I want it to matter. I prayed over it so much this week. In my small group, we did a, we did a study of one of the books I wrote, um, Walking Into Walls, and when it was over, I said, you know, we just shouldn't ever do my stuff anymore because no one was any different after it was over. We were just, we were all the same, and uh, it was just a big waste of time. And, and I don't want this to be a waste of time this morning. Um, last week, I, I spoke about excuses. And I, I just wonder if anybody maybe this week gave up an excuse or was it just a talk? You know, you come and, and then you leave and you, you make excuses for not doing what God calls us to do. So this morning, I'm, uh, I'm talking about letting go of anger. Psalm 37, 8 says, Stop being angry. Turn from your rage. Don't. Lose your temper. It only leads to harm. There's a lot of anger out there. I um, heard a story this week about a woman. She was at a um, traffic light. She was trying to go through the light. But before she could go through it, a car pulled right in front of her, and she was honking the horn and, and raising her angry fists and making hand gestures indicating the level of her IQ and just, just furious. And she didn't realize a policeman was behind her. And he comes up, and he takes her out of the car and puts her in a patrol car after he handcuffs her, and he arrests her. And she's in jail for two hours, and finally he comes to the cell and opens it up and says to her, I am so sorry. I made a horrible mistake. But when I saw how you were acting and I looked on the back of that car and saw that little fish and that I worship at Heartland bumper sticker, I just knew you had stolen that car. <laughs> you know, we need to be uh, aware of what our car's wearing out there, you know. The Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Phyllis Diller, the comedian, used to say, we never went to bed angry. We stayed up and fought all night long. <laughs> One man knew how to prevent anger. One day his wife said to him, honey, do, do I look fat in this new dress? And he paused and said, do I look stupid in this new shirt? He's a smart man. He didn't answer the question. There's a lot of anger all around. And um, the dilemma is what are we going to do? You know, sometimes it takes the extreme to get us to focus on our little piece of this angry world. 
The Bible's full of angry people, some of them so angry they committed murder. Right there in the first family was the first murder. And, and I could talk about all the angry people, but I just wanted to mention that there was one man who had every right to be angry, and he was not. His name was Joseph, in the Old Testament. Sold into slavery by his brothers. His daddy didn't protect him. His daddy didn't rescue him. And he ends up, the man, Potiphar, who, who bought him and owned him, ended up letting him run his entire household. You don't let an angry slave run your household. And then he ends up in prison for not responding to the advances of Potiphar's wife, and the jailer ends up letting him run the whole jail. You don't let an angry prisoner run the jail. And he interpreted dreams, eventually interpreted Pharaoh's dream. And eventually that led to him running the entire country. You don't allow an angry ex-con to run the country. And then he uses his position to serve people and to even save his own family, even the brothers who caused all the evil. An angry, venom-filled brother doesn't save his family. Because he had this attitude that whatever is evil in this world, whatever somebody does, whatever Satan uses to produce evil, God will take it and produce something good out of it. That's how you go from seething to serving, is with that kind of attitude. And so we have to ask ourselves, how is it that we could go about living a life much more like Joseph than like we do with our justifiable resentment and our anger. Well, first of all, there, there are different types of anger. There's a good kind of anger where you're angry at some injustice or, or something that's not right. Many of us felt that this week. And what that demands of us is to take action. If you're around an angry person, you need to take action so that that anger is no longer allowed to exist there. There's also an anger that comes from a physiologically imbalanced brain, and that person needs medication. And then there's an anger that's brought on by addiction. Uh, many people, there's even a, a thing called a pathological intoxication where instantly you're full of rage when you take one drink, but other people, as the inhibitions are lessened, they become angry drinkers. And then in withdrawal, from whatever addiction, whether it's sexual addiction or alcoholism, drug addiction, in the withdrawal, the anger becomes so great and intense. And those folks need to get treatment for whatever addiction they're dealing with. But there's another kind of anger, and that's where anger is a visible sign of an invisible source. Anger becomes a visible indication that there is an invisible, unhealed, unresolved source of anger within the heart and the mind of the individual, the soul. A lady got her husband into every man's battle workshop, and he recovered, and over that year, he started to get attention from people about 
the, uh, the recovery he was in, and, and he was admired by people for making such a radical change, and the better he got, the more angry she got. And she got some help and realized she wasn't angry at him at all. Her anger was a visible sign of an invisible hurt from a dad who would go to church and everybody would admire him and then he would go home and he would live like hell the rest of the week. And seeing her husband do well, tapped into that, triggered that, and so she had to resolve the anger, the invisible source from her father before she and her husband could heal together. It was kind of like this, this thing called phantom limb, where a person, you know, many times they, they have this, this limb that is just there, and they, they decide it would be easier just to have it amputated than to continue uh, to live with this injured limb. Or maybe it's uh, severed in an accident or, or, or wherever, and then after it's gone, they discover that it didn't solve the problem. There's still this pain that's coming from this, maybe it's a clenched fist that, that isn't there anymore. So the pain isn't there. There's nothing there. The pain is here. Because the brain believes it's still there. And so you can't do anything to something that's not there. You have to do it here. To resolve the pain of the phantom limb. Two weeks ago, um, I sat down with a woman, and she didn't have a phantom limb. It was a phantom hymn. It was her father. She grew up, she got married divorced. They had two boys. As the boys became men, they came to represent all the other men that she had been so angry at, so distant from, no trust. Someone hands her a book called Pain and Pretending by a former friend of mine. He's dead now, Rich Bueller. She reads. She decides to get counseling, and after 40 years, this had never entered her mind for 40 years, she realizes that her father had molested her at the age of 12. And that that unacknowledged abuse had fueled this anger and distrust for all men. It was a phantom hymn. And many of us have a phantom him or a phantom her. And then she began to heal because she was able to accept the reality, grieve the loss of who she thought her father was, and forgive him. And then she experienced the Christian life that she had missed for so, so very long. One man working with uh, people with phantom limb, he developed a mirror box and he discovered that, that if he could get a person with a mirror to show the brain a fist unclenching 
over and over again, releasing that it would retrain the brain to believe that this fist that isn't there is relaxed and at peace and the pain was relieved from phantom limb. We have to we have to release the people that are causing our clenched fists that are causing us to spew our anger and rage out on other people and they have nothing to do with the invisible source. We have to resolve that invisible source. So, we have to ask ourselves, are, are we the angry one in the couple? Are we the one that's the most angry of all our brothers and sisters? Do we feel justified in this this anger and rage, and, and what do we need to do? Well, first of all, we need to humble ourselves to say that maybe I do have a problem. Maybe that's what I'm here for today. Maybe I need to stop being so demanding and having these unrealistic expectations. Maybe I need to take a second look in a mirror you know, mirrors can be very valuable, unless, like, you're a vampire or something, where you can't. By the way, how, how do those new movie star vampires look so good when they can't see in a mirror to put on their makeup? It's just something, I, I just kind of bugs me. Anyway, but sometimes you look in the mirror and say, maybe I am the problem, and they're not. And I've got some work in here to do, not them fix themselves. I need to ask, am I a a healer or an inflictor of pain, a helper or a herder? Do I need to stop drinking, pornography, demanding? Do I need to stop the, the thinking that I can stop on my own? One woman was asked, is your husband a good provider? She said, yes, he provides headaches, ulcers, uh, blood pressure, fear. Maybe we need to provide peace. Maybe I need to forgive people that have hurt me so that I stop reliving and start forgiving. Maybe I need to accept the imperfections of other people. Maybe I need to work on some issues. My, my great regrets or my, uh, my biggest hurts or my losses. Maybe I need to open up. James 5.16 says, confess your sins one to another and pray for each other that you might be healed. Maybe I need to open up. Maybe I need to open up with the people I've been hurting. Maybe I need to look at the entitlements that I have or the fears that I have, the fear of looking weak, and so I use anger as a source uh, to show that I have strength. Maybe I need to do some Scripture memorization and meditation to fill some goodness in my heart. James 3.17 says, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at times, and willing to yield to others. I mean, maybe I need to memorize that. And, and, and so it saturates my soul. And I become someone that's gentle and peace-loving and willing to yield. 
And in my moment of anger, I, I've developed this, this acronym, SQBW. Uh, it's uh, S-C-B-W. You can't forget it. SQBW. And, um, you know, it stands for stop. You know, rather than, than yell at somebody or, or, or be angry, stop. And then uh, C, consider. Does this really matter? Is this really going to matter my life a year from now? And then breathe, you know, take some deep breaths. And W, walk away. Squibwoo. Versus, I have a right to express my anger and my rage. Maybe, maybe we need a willingness to finally surrender to Jesus, the heart that he has never had. Maybe we need to finally turn over this angry heart to the Lord who, who wants it. Maybe you accepted Christ a long time ago. Maybe not. But maybe you did, but you realize this heart is not transformed by Jesus. And uh, maybe you need some counseling, but maybe, maybe you need today to walk down the aisle and say, I want to accept Christ. I want to turn my heart over to him so I can walk out of this church a different person. That talk that Billy Graham gave in Silicon Valley to this technology conference, he said, there are three problems in this world that technology will never solve. One is evil in this world, and we have seen evil this week for thousands of years. Satan has loved killing children. He killed children when uh, Moses, in the day of Moses. He killed children after Jesus was born. He kills children through starvation and dirty water and abortion, all sorts of ways that Satan relishes in the death of a child. But just as, um, as he loves evil, he also loves human suffering, and he entices people to sin. And we've seen such suffering this week. And it could be violence, it could be neglect, abuse, inflicting pain on others. He loves when, when people suffer and death. That problem technology will never solve. And boy, did we see horrific death this week. But in the face of evil, God offers us good and grace and redemption. And he takes what Satan means for evil and he does something good from it. And in the midst of human suffering, he offers comfort and hope and healing. And he's born into us a resilience that is quite astounding. And, and those people will recover. They will not be the same, but they will recover. We will recover. And death, in the face of death, he offers new life. And he offers eternal life. And as Darren mentioned, I do believe with all my heart that in that horrific moment, those children were whisked away into the loving arms of Jesus Christ who comforted them and accepted them into the kingdom of heaven forever.
So, um, so what do we do? Well, if you have children like, like we do, you need to do some things with your children. You need to hug them. You need to hold them. You need to talk to them. You need to tell them that there was a situation that you're aware of and ask them, what do they know about that situation? And clarify what happened, not sensationalize. We need to be truthful with them, confident and reassuring. Uh, we need to answer their questions and let them express their fears with, with art and play and uh, games with them. We need to... Uh, we need to give them confidence and tell them that, that everybody in the community, including us, that we're working to make schools safe for them. And give them confidence that you know that they would know exactly what to do in that situation, that you know they would jump under their desk and they would hide and not make a peep, that they would know to do that. Give them confidence. They may need a day or two off from school. Because sometimes these kinds of things trigger other things in a small child. And we need to watch for signs of unexpressed fear because they've got nightmares or sleep disturbances or they're irritable beyond what they normally are or, or they're, uh, they can't separate from us or they lose their appetite. We need to be aware. And we may need to get some counseling for them. You don't know how things affect different children. That's what we can do for our kids. But what can we do in addition? Well, we can refuse to plant seeds of anger into others that may result in acts of rage and violence later. We can, we can decide that it's, it's an angry world and we're either a contributor to it or we are a healer from it. And we can decide today that these deaths will not be in vain because we will do something to heal the invisible source of our pain and our anger. God says, um, I have quieted the raging oceans with their pounding waves. And God can quiet the anger of any person that's willing to surrender a heart to Him and His ways. He wants to make peace in your heart so you can bring peace into your home. And I pity the angry person that walks out of here today no different. I pity the father who has rage in his heart who walks out of here and continues to live and spew that out all over a family. I pity a mother who is full of resentment and bitterness. Instead, why not walk down this aisle, surrender that anger and your heart to Christ, pray with somebody, and walk out of here a new person. If not now, when? Colossians says, 
Now is the time to get rid of anger and rage and malicious behavior so that when you look in the mirror, you see someone that's a healer and not a herder. Pray with me. God, be with those parents, Lord. Be with the children who lost friends. Be with the families. And be with, with these folks here today, Lord. Be with us. Help us to lead our children and our families in your ways of peace and healing and restoration. Lord, let this be the day that you not just calm the seas, but you calm the rage within our hearts as we turn our hearts over to you. I ask this in your blessed name, Lord. Amen.